I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover, and we find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides binge-watching episodes of Ted Lasso. Who doesn't like Ted Lasso? I'm at the end. I've caught up with both seasons. We finished season one, getting ready to start season two, and even though... I'm a curmudgeon. I, you can't help but like Ted Lasso, who's like an annoying optimist. There's a lot of cursing in there it, which is. makes you happy. And that's true. And a lot of sarcasm. And I like Roy because he's a curmudgeon. He so. is. He is. He's <laughs> he's our favorite character. So we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. So lots of people travel around Labor Day and start thinking about fall break adventures. So this week's episode is jam-packed with travel writing. So we're not going to talk about all of Carrie's problems with extra cupcakes and giant zucchinis. Thank goodness. We chat with two guests this week. Our first guest is not a writer, but a graphic designer who began making cool illustrated posters of national parks on an Instagram account called Subpar Parks. Amber Share couples her illustrations with terrible one-star Yelp reviews, those park reviews received from visitors who weren't terribly impressed with majestic things like the Grand Canyon and Old Faithful. Her illustrations have gone viral, and she recently collected them all in book format and included facts about each national park from park rangers. Her book is a New York Times bestseller. And then we'll move on to our second guest, writer Suzanne Roberts, who National Geographic magazine named a next great travel writer. Her most recent book, Bad Tourist, Misadventures, and Love and Travel, has received many awards, including the Independent Publisher Book Award and National Indie Excellent Award. She weaves a story of maturing as a woman and becoming a veteran traveler. Her book will make you laugh, but it also gets serious, and those serious essays make her humor seem all the more poignant. We have a new website. We want everybody to check it out. Not only can you find our episodes on there where we feature our guests, you can find past episodes there, but you can also find listener book recommendations. We have asked listeners to start sending us their favorite five-star reads. And so, you know, if you need a book suggestion, uh, take a look there. But we're also featuring some of our guests' pets. Because why, Carrie? because they won't shut up when we're recording. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) We've been, we've all been recording from home and lots of times you can hear all kinds of animals barking and meowing and purring and all in the background. And a lot of times I can't edit it out. So we decided if you can't beat them, join them. And we just decided to give them their own day in the spotlight. Yeah. And there is a spot there where you can contact us. So we would love to hear your thoughts, your opinions, your suggestions. As long as they're civil. Yes. Well, (laughs) you know. So Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I started following your Instagram account. Oh, I think it was probably late last year. And I love it. I look forward to whenever you post something new on your Subpar Parks Instagram account. So I was super excited when I saw that you were coming out with a book. So how would you describe your book, Subpar Parks, to someone who isn't familiar with you on Instagram or your social media accounts? Yeah. So Subpar Parks is an illustration project where I combine my illustrations of um, scenery in national parks 
with hand-lettered text from their one-star online reviews. So that's kind of what the project started as. And then the book includes all of those illustrations, plus a bunch of new ones. But I also added in a lot of history and information about the parks, including anecdotes from rangers and tips for visiting. Well, it's an awesome book. Uh, Amy and I got together and we're looking through it. And I just, I couldn't help but laugh chapter after chapter. So you trained as a graphic designer. Is that accurate? Yes. And you first started with these graphics, with these real hilarious and just kind of strange to my perspective reviews. And you've said that this was a a passion project. So I, I mean, what was it that made you think that you wanted to make these posters and, and share them? What was it that really attracted you to the idea? Well, I really just wanted um, an illustration project that kind of focused on the outdoors because I spend a lot of my time outside in parks, hiking and whatnot. And as a professional designer, you just don't really get to do a lot of illustration. They're kind of two separate tracks. So I wanted to keep myself illustrating. So it felt like a pretty nice natural capsule project to challenge myself to draw the 62, now 63 national parks. But I wanted some kind of twist that would make it stand out a little just because there are already so many incredible sets of illustrations of the parks. So I felt like I wasn't really saying anything new or bringing anything interesting to the table. And then I stumbled upon some one-star reviews of the parks and the rest is history. (laughs) Where do you get the one-star reviews? I know you said the first one that you saw was on Reddit, but is that where you find most of them? Or is there like a Yelp account for, you know, national parks or how does that work? Yeah, shockingly, there are Yelp profiles for some of the parks. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the ones I saw on Reddit were just screenshots from like Google reviews, Yelp. Um, so all the ones I actually use are on real review sites like TripAdvisor, Yelp, Google reviews. You know, this book, as we've said, is super funny. It's an irony, like using people's words sort of against them. But do you consider yourself a funny person in your daily life? And that's why you were drawn to it? Um, I mean, I have an appreciation for humor first. But I do also think I'm a pretty funny person, which has taken me kind of a long time to own, just because I'm also kind of introverted and quiet a lot. But I'm definitely, I'm pretty witty, I love a good pun, which, you know, some people groan and don't love those, but (laughs) they're they're a bit of my kind of humor. And I'm just also very sarcastic. So it felt like a kind of a natural project for that. Yeah, Yeah, you definitely have to have an appreciation for snark looking through your book, which Amy and I both do. So that's fun. I'm wondering in the book, it's funny, you know, and it's light and informative, but it also feels like you're making a statement about the modern attention span and people's voracious appetite or expectations to be entertained. And so I wonder if you also feel like the reviews that you've seen, they're funny, but do you ever feel frustrated because you have said that you really enjoy and love the the national parks? (laughs) Yeah, I don't particularly really feel frustrated by the reviews. I think a part of it is that like, Other than when you're discussing, you know, accessibility or the management or facilities of the park, I don't really see the point of reviewing a national park. Like (laughs) I focus on the reviews that were about the scenery. So I think in that way, this was like kind of a really great vessel for this project because 
it's so especially ridiculous to be criticizing the size of mountains or the desert for being a desert. So it makes them really easy to kind of laugh at and not really let them get to you. Yeah. So um, as I was going through the book, one of the ones that stuck out to me, mainly because it's a, a part of the country where my family is from, is the newest national park, the New River Gorge National Park. My grandmother lived just right outside that park. And to give our listeners an example, so you have a, a beautiful illustration of um, the New River Gorge uh, with the bridge going across. And the review is, Mist obscured the views, which to me is so ridiculous because that's one of the magical things about the New River Gorge is all this mist that can settle down, especially in the morning. So you feel like you're up in the clouds. So in some ways, I find it a little frustrating because you feel like, why can't people appreciate this more? But you're right. I mean, you can't make everybody happy, which kind of goes into my next question, which is that... In your foreword, you said that a lot of people had sent you feedback that your book and your posts on social media about the parks have made them feel better about when they have negative experiences with people maybe in a retail setting or something that you just can't make everybody happy. The book is a bit of a life philosophy, like the don't sweat it type of philosophy. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean... I think initially that was my biggest takeaway, and it sort of took a little while for that to seep in for a lot of my followers, just because it's kind of like a meme format, so people just laughed and moved on. But over time, it sort of became a bigger part of my message that I wanted people to come away with, is that, you know, like I said, the parks were a good vessel for this because it's so easy to laugh at someone reviewing a mountain, <laughs> but it's a little harder to laugh when it's someone reviewing something you've poured your heart and soul into. And so I really want people to take away that, you know, if a national park can get a one-star review, you absolutely don't have a chance of pleasing everyone. So we all really should just try to focus on what brings us joy and on finding the people who get joy out of that too. So your book has ranger notes and research. So how did you squeeze all that in doing the research and writing it with your regular graphic design work. Yeah. So luckily at that point, I was really heavily focused on subpar parks and I wasn't really taking on much in the way of regular design work anymore. And I actually ended up leaving my full-time job last year. So during that, subpar parks kind of went a little nuts. So while I was focusing on the book, my husband and my family and friends were able to kind of come in and take care of the online store, which is sort of the main thing, so that I could really focus on that. So yeah, it was a lot of research, a lot of sending out emails and little surveys to rangers to get kind of their input on certain parks. And yeah, it was it was a lot of work, but I think it was well worth it. Have you gotten any feedback from park rangers and things in the national parks? I wonder if this might well, I don't know that they need any help increasing the number of people visiting national parks. I hear that there's huge long waits, uh, yeah. especially at a lot of them out west. But I was just wondering if you'd ever heard from any of the park rangers about what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Tons of them. Current and former. A lot of them have just reached out to sort of laugh and share some of the funny comments or questions that they've gotten from visitors over their time in the parks. Because I think especially if you are in a ranger role where you're at the visitor center or 
at a trailhead um, helping people. You're going to see these one-star reviewers in real life while they are disgruntled. So they definitely get some interesting (laughs) comments and some of them have shared them with me, but they all seem to enjoy it and get a good laugh out of it. You had said that you, you love the outdoors and the national parks. Did doing the book even increase that appreciation and that love even more? Absolutely. Before I started the project, I thought like, oh yeah, I know all the parks. I totally know what they are. And then as I was creating my little spreadsheet, gathering my reviews, I started realizing how few I actually knew even their names or even just anything more than that. So I've learned so much about so many different places while I've been doing this project that it has just expanded my bucket list of places to visit exponentially. Do you have a favorite park page in your book or even just a favorite park? Oh, it's so it's like choosing your favorite child. I know. I know. <laughs> favorite page in the book. Um, I think just overall my favorite pages in the book are ones where I also have little like spot illustrations or sketches. Like Theodore Roosevelt National Park has a really interesting story where like a vein of coal in the rock formations was actually on fire for a absurd amount of years. And I guess visitors back then would come and be able to roast s'mores over the <laughs> over the coal fire. So I drew like a little s'more for the for the book. So I just love ones like that where I add like a little illustration where if you just saw it, you're like, what? But when you read the content, you realize why it fits. But as far as favorite parks go, I always have to say that it's the Grand Canyon. Mm. It's just kind of the park that I visited in my childhood that just I distinctly remember. I visited a lot as a kid when we traveled with my family, but the Grand Canyon just really stuck out to me. And it's where I did my first backpacking trip. So it's just a really, really special place. And I think a lot of people don't get to experience quite how special it is, because if you just look at it from the rim, I don't think you quite get it. You were saying that you still wanted to do some illustration, even though you did graphic design. Can you just explain to me what the difference between those two things is for someone who's not an art person. Yeah. I mean, the world of design and art is super varied. You can have positions doing a lot of different things. But as a graphic designer, as my title, I generally was doing like a lot of layout stuff. I might do like, you know, designing brochures and things like that. I might do some really basic little like icon type of illustration work, but nothing really where I was just getting to like sit and draw for hours because that's really more of an illustration discipline. So the illustration is actually like drawing the art with your hand, so to speak, as opposed to graphic design, which might be more computer related. I mean, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, there's also, there's definitely digital illustration. Like people do amazing things in Adobe Illustrator. That just wasn't ever my role. The illustration work I was getting to do as a designer was just very minimal. So your book has been so successful. It's made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. What were your expectations for this project when you started it? I'm sure it probably wasn't to make it to a New York (laughs) Times bestseller list. I could be wrong about that. (laughs) But how are you feeling about that whole thing? I mean, it's been kind of an incredible ride. I really didn't have any expectations when I first started posting. I just was like, okay, this might be kind of like a niche funny thing that some people will enjoy and it will be a good little capsule illustration project for me and then I'll move on. But it's been pretty incredible. I never really expected it to be where it is. I never expected the Instagram account to grow as much as it has. 
definitely never expected New York Times bestseller. But I mean, my followers have been kind of asking for a book from the beginning. So I knew it would do pretty well just because they all really wanted it because it's such a nice way to kind of have the whole collection at your fingertips. But yeah, I definitely never, ever expected this when I first started out. And I, I suspect with COVID too, I mean, when we were all inside our houses for days and days on end, like thinking about nature and being outside was just sort of a salve, you know? So I, I suspect that well, it was the right too, timing for you know, it as well. Now, people, you know? people feel safer outdoors now. You know, they may not feel quite as safe going to inside an art museum or, you know, a big sort of entertainment venue when they're indoors. I think just being outside where you can get away from people a little bit. I think, you know, that's an attraction right now that maybe wasn't so much the case 18 months ago. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I kind of talk about how, so I started the project in December of 2019. I don't even think we'd heard about COVID yet. And then, you know, obviously January, February, it started to get pretty, pretty insane. And then in March, a lot of places shut down. So we, my husband and I have talked about how like we'll never really be able to separate the project from COVID mm-hmm. and know what would have happened without that. But it definitely didn't hurt the project that people were sort of pining for being outside. And this was kind of a way to laugh <laughs> at the people who hated the places that some of these people just desperately wished they could be visiting. Right. So you mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier about a store. So do you sell posters? if somebody wanted Um, specific ones? Yeah. So that was something I definitely didn't expect when I started the project because I was like, I didn't think anyone would want this. (laughs) But um, people pretty immediately started being like, you need to make stickers. I want a postcard. And so one day I just like put up a little pre-order to see if that was of interest. And I was able to get enough income to actually turn around and buy a little bit of inventory of like prints and stickers and postcards. And it's just gone from there. Okay, that sounds. I think I'm going to have to order some stickers now for my for my computer and my water bottle. So, what's next for you? Are you working on new projects? I have like another business with a friend of mine where we make an annual planner and little adventure logs for tracking like your hikes and things. So that's been a fun different side project for me to work on. But other than that, I'm really just trying to kind of enjoy where I'm at and everything that's happened in the last year and a half. And just sort of giving myself the time to soak that all in. Because I don't ever want to like look back and be like, man, I really rushed through that part of life. And it was really not to be missed. And I just glided right over it. So I'm really trying to give myself time to just take it all in. That's that's a good philosophy. We encourage everybody to check out your social media and, and check out the book. Because it's a lot of fun. Especially if you are the type of person who loves national parks. Okay, well, I think that we need to talk about some books, Carrie. So we're talking about travel books this week, specific to place, maybe, maybe not travel writing per se. What what you got? What you got to tell me about? So, you know, when we started tossing around ideas about how we were going to do this episode, when I actually looked at my Goodreads list of, of books I've read, I was like, hmm, apparently travel writing is not something I, I read a lot of, which is, I guess, maybe a little weird because I really do like to travel. But I think I've maybe read like two 
travel memoirs. But I will say, when we were talking about travel, one of the books that really, I guess, speaks to me, I love this book, I have taught this book, it's My Antonia by Willa Cather. You know, and and so a lot of you were like, oh my gosh, my teacher in high school tried to get me to read this book. And it was just about grass, you know, out in Nebraska. And um, that's true. But I have had a lot of students really love this book and they've sort of deemed it their favorite book. But it is a story of Jim Burden. And so at the beginning of the story, uh, his parents have been killed And so he travels by train from Virginia out to Nebraska, and he grows up on his grandparents' farm. And if you sit down and you read the book closely, what you will notice from the very beginning is how much color is in this book. You know, black, brown, red, just tons of color. And so it's very easy to picture the landscape. The landscape becomes a character. And you know, one of the things I teach my students is how this My Antonia blends this romantic view of the landscape and home and nostalgia. And because there is, I mean, people identify a lot of who they are with where they come from. And so there's this kind of romantic notion of place. But then there's also in this book, there's this like gritty realism, because you learn about some of the immigrants who live in just extreme poverty on the land. And so there's this, you know, this romantic idea that parallels this grit. Now, I have not been to Nebraska, but this is a book that just has made me very curious about Nebraska. And I even interviewed somebody for a magazine article this past summer and she was from Nebraska. And and one of the questions I was like, so do y'all read Willa Cather? Like, is that what, what you read out in Nebraska? And, and we talked about it. So I think that even though it's not like a travel memoir, it very much immerses you in a place. And at least for me, makes me curious about what that place has been like historically, but also, you know, what it would be like now for me if I went. So... Okay, a couple things about Willa Cather. First of all, I remember reading that book. I don't know if I read it in high school or college, but I remember really liking it. And what was memorable to me were the sod houses mm-hmm. that were built into the ground. That that was a very visceral image that I got from that book. Second of all, Willa Cather is sort of like the, the, the mother of travel writing in America, it seems to me in some way, because I read another one of her books, Death Comes for the Archbishop, which is a book I read right before traveling to Santa Fe, New Mexico, several years ago. And I can't recommend it enough to really get a sense of the desert in the southwestern United States. And it's her fictionalized version of the journey of a French priest, Jean-Marie Latour, in Santa Fe from France at the time when the territory wasn't a part of the U.S. yet. So this is like the mid-1800s before the Civil War. And he spearheaded an effort to join all the different cultural communities in the area, which were the Spaniards, the Mexicans, and the indigenous people to come together as one behind the Catholic Church, which when there is no organized government in a place, the church sort of becomes that ruling party. But all the places that we see in this book where Latour goes, where he builds, where he visits, you can still see in Santa Fe today. And the descriptions of the landscape are just still so resonant. And so there's another example of her, you know, using place in such a 
fundamental way in her writing, but she also has another one that she wrote of a place that you and I have both been, Carrie, Quebec City. Mm. Now, I've not read this one, but it's called Shadows on the Rock, which is about Quebec. And so I would like to read that one too. But I've actually thought about choosing my Antonia for our book club sometime because we like to read a classic once a year. Or I say we. I like to read a classic <laughs> once a year. I don't I know if everybody like to read does. A classic. <laughs> and I would like to reread that one. So that's a that's a good one. Yeah. And then I do want to mention, so there are two other books that I've read. Uh, one I've already talked about. It was called The Innocence by Michael Crumey. And it's set in Newfoundland. But there's also a book by Annie Prue called The Shipping News. And that is set in Newfoundland. And I remember after reading both of those, I started Googling Newfoundland and it's beautiful. I mean, just the the pictures. Those are two books that were super interesting. I I really enjoyed both books. I, I think I gave them both four or five stars. But the setting made me super curious about, you know, maybe I'd like to visit there someday. And so I sort of like stories that immerse me so fully in the place that it makes me think this is someplace that I really want to go. So that's my take. So how about you? I do like travel memoirs and I have read several, but most of them I've already talked about on the show, at least the recent ones that I've read. But I wanted to talk about one that I read several years ago. And in fact, our book club read it and it was very well received by almost everyone, if I remember correctly. And it's called Dispatches from Pluto, Lost and Found on the Mississippi Delta by Richard Grant. And this book was written by the adventure writer Richard Grant, who is a Brit, but he lived in New York City until the time when he and his girlfriend decided kind of on a whim to buy a plantation house in rural Mississippi. And this is the story of Grant and his girlfriend learning a new way of life, of growing their own food, of hunting, of dealing with things like alligators and snakes and swamps and all while fixing up this house in a place that definitely seems a little bit foreign to them. Maybe somewhat like being on another planet, although the name Pluto refers to the small town of Mississippi that is just a few miles away from their new home. The book really gives a picture of race relations in this part of Mississippi from a complete outsider's point of view. And I don't just mean outside Mississippi, I mean outside the United States. Grant was raised in Malaysia and the Middle East before being schooled in Britain. So his take on our bizarre state of affairs in our country is uh, really interesting. And he befriends many locals. Some are just normal people from the community and others are more famous, like actor Morgan Freeman, who is from that area. And what he writes about is the beauty of the place, as well as the immense struggles those who live there face economically, environmentally, and racially. Definitely a journey. And one reviewer on Goodreads described it as, a Year in Provence Meets Alligators and Assassins, or <laughs> Midnight in the Garden of Good, Good and Evil with Hunting Scenes and Swamp to Table Dining. So both of those books that referred to there, A Year in Provence by Francis Mays, Midnight in the Garden of Good, Good and Evil by John Barant are both sort of classic travel, I guess they're travel memoirs, even though they kind of stay in the same place. I actually would like to reread this one, especially in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and the racial unrest of last summer, because I wonder if the parts of the book that are about race relations would land in the same way. I don't know. You know, we've rethought a lot of things since those 
two events. I gave this one four stars and I do wholeheartedly recommend it. Although I will say it didn't necessarily make me want to visit the Mississippi Delta. We had a book club member who lived for a period of time in that area. And she said that the book was very accurate in describing that place, but it sounded very buggy, hot and dangerous to me. And I don't want to visit. Yeah. Is that and okay? Right, and right now it's very COVID-y. So. And very, and very COVID-y. I did want to mention a book. Yesterday I visited my farmer's market. There's lots of farmer's markets around Louisville. My particular favorite one, I was there. I go every Saturday and I discovered that they had a new free little library right there on the grounds. So before I bought my tomatoes and collard greens, I looked in the free little library and what was there but a book that sounded awesome and goes right with our theme of travel writing. It's a book called The Geography of Bliss, One Grump's Search for the Happiest Places in the World by Eric Weiner. And so I decided that I I needed to bring this book home with me. When I read the front cover, it sounds so good to me. The author, Eric Weiner, he was a NPR foreign correspondent who was in war zones and other places around the world that were in places of unhappiness from catastrophes of all sorts. So at some point he decided he wanted to see the other side of that story. Where were the places in the world that people were the most contented and why? And so I am anxious to read this. So there is a book that I haven't read that's travel writing that I want to read. I was sold at Grump. If there's a Grump in it, I'm down. <laughs> I know. I'll I'll pass it along because yeah, that you're you're a me. lovable Grump. You're a lovable Grump. Yeah, I'm like the Oscar of this outfit. Oh well, and listeners, we would like to hear what travel writing or books that are st- with a strong sense of place that you would recommend to us, because apparently we need more of those in our lives. I do. Maybe not Carrie. <laughs> She's a Grump about it. All right, let's listen to Suzanne. Suzanne Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about you. Were you a big reader as a kid and where did you grow up? I was a huge reader as a kid. I think that the most important thing in a writer's life is actually the reading. So when I was little, I read book after book after book, and it was a way to disappear into a world. And I can still do that where the world disappears when I'm inside a book. I grew up in uh, Southern California but did my undergrad and master's in the Central Coast at San Luis Obispo and have lived in South Lake Tahoe for the last 20 years. In the same vein, when did your love for travel start? Did you travel as a child as well? Well, we didn't have money. So we lived in a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment in Sherman Oaks, and we ate McDonald's a lot. We had rented furniture. So we weren't the kind of family that went on family vacations every year. But there were a couple of times that my parents saved enough money and took me to Sequoia National Park. And I begged them to take me skiing because I had a friend who liked to ski. So we would go do that at the local mountains in Big Bear and Mammoth. And I fell in love with the wilderness that way. So in a very real way, they were responsible for my love of nature and travel, even though we didn't get to do it very much. I should also say that my mother is from England. So we did take trips back to see my grandparents. You know, those were some early international trips, but they were 
family trips. So I have three kids and I love to travel. Now, when I was a kid, you know, I complained wherever my parents took us. It was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. But I have this conversation with myself a lot about as a parent, what travel opportunities I should offer my children. And sometimes you see social media and what other parents do with their kids and what any given parent can do with their budget. But at least for me, what I can expose my children to in terms of travel, it is like a dilemma that I have for myself. I think you can stay close to home and still make it like traveling, you know, mm-hmm. because you're not maybe doing the laundry and you're not vacuuming the house, but it, you're all getting away, even if it's only an hour away. And in the case of, you know, my childhood, the biggest thing was, is it was a different landscape, mm-hmm. you know, so it wasn't the city and we took, you know, day trips out to the beach, which was only 30 minutes away, but it felt a world away. Well, I'm curious about your reading now. You know, you, you're a travel writer. So do you read a lot of travel writing or do you jump all over in terms of what you like to read now as an adult? Oh, I jump all over. I mean, I think I, I love novels. I love memoir, lyrical essay and, and poetry. I mean, I think one of the best things we can do as prose writers, frankly, is, is to read poetry and look at the way poets use the line and image and rhythm I read widely and deeply in every genre, pretty much. Well, I just finished your book a day or two ago. I loved it. It was a five-star read for me. But for our listeners who probably have not read it, can you give them just a little summary of your book, Bad Tourist? Sure. Thank you. And thank you for saying such kind things about (laughs) it. So Bad Tourist, I I think of it as kind of an anti-guidebook. It's a memoir in essays, and the essays are arranged not in chronological order, but in the order of a guidebook. But it's kind of an anti-guidebook, so it's meant to be ironic, just like Bad Tourist, right, is meant to be ironic. (laughs) Because we think of tourists and we assign the word bad anyway, often. And so the books explore the world, but they also explore my own interiority, where I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out who I am, what it means to be a female body moving about the world, what it means to be a female body in relation to other bodies. And so when I originally wrote the book, I wrote it as a straight memoir in chronological order, but I realized that my level of growth and my level of sort of finding out who I was didn't happen on a straight line. So I decided the book shouldn't happen on a straight line either, but it does happen in a sort of arc, you know, where where you see this sort of more fumbling narrator who's trying not to be a bad tourist, but inevitably always is, to someone who has a little bit of a greater understanding of her own blind spots, though blind spots, the very definition, right, is that they're blind, we can't see them. So I, I know I still have them, but it's a work in progress. The book is finished, but I'm still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Travel writing is different from a a travel guide. And when it's not done well, it can be like listening to a cousin tell you about their summer vacation. What do you think are the ingredients of good travel writing? Well, I I mean, the way I I see it, and I I think most see, see it, is there are two categories of travel writing, right? There's the travel writing that is in guidebooks, right, that is called service writing that tells you where to go, what to eat, where to stay you know, all those things. And that kind of travel writing is generally doesn't include the personal I, right? Includes the you, like, you know, lace up your shoes and hit the trail. And when you get to mile four, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now I do write that kind of travel writing for money, but it's not my favorite 
writing. It's, it's more of a job. I, I feel, even though it's, it's sort of fun because they always give you an impossible assignment, like write about these 10 ghost towns in 500 words, which is, <laughs> a challenge. And, you know, and I end up with 5,000 words and then have to cut to 500 words. And I understand how to be economical. So it's a good practice for me. But the kind of travel writing I do is more like personal narrative, place-based, you know, long-form creative nonfiction. So you might find an essay that I publish, not just in a travel journal, but in a literary journal, but it's still travel because it's dependent on that place. But having said that, a place doesn't make a story, right? You can talk about the most far-flung, interesting place in a really boring way. Mm -hmm. or you can talk about your backyard in a really interesting way. And it's all in sort of the vision, right? In the, in how you're seeing it and how you're looking at and what the conflicts are, you know, all writing, all good writing has some sort of conflict, right? If you go to the park and you have a picnic and nothing happens, you don't have a story. Mm -hmm. If you go to the park and you set your blanket on a fire ant hive, you have a story all of a sudden. And it doesn't have to be the outside world that gives you the story. It can also be internal conflicts, which is the case with a lot of my essays in Bad Tourist. One of the things that I came away with from your book is that as a traveler, you should leave your expectations that you have for a place that you're visiting behind when you're visiting that place. So why is that important? Well, you know, I don't know about you, but when I go to a place, the sort of Rolodex of my mind spins so that I'm trying to figure out what it's like, right? Like, oh, I've seen a street market like this. Those buildings are like that. And for some reason, and maybe that's just our minds need to feel some kind of connection or familiarity. So I find myself doing that. But I think if we do that, we overlay what we already know on places and we don't really see the place. And I also think if we bring our way of living, our way of knowing into another place, then we have these expectations of the place. When the place is is not worse, just different, we tend to be like, oh my gosh, how come I have to stand in line here? You know, how come the waiter is taking two hours? Well, maybe you should relax a little and enjoy your dinner and not just eat super quickly in haste. And maybe that's the point. So I, I think that we can enjoy it more if we try. I don't think we ever can leave our sort of own expectations. But I think if we try to leave them behind, we will have a, a better, more authentic experience. I, I have gotten better about this, but there have been certain things where I like build them up in my head. Like, this is the one thing that I want to see. And a lot of times I build it up to the extent that seeing it, I have just built it up so much that nothing can match that. And so I've gotten better about going, I'm going to see what I'm, what I see. And if I get to see this one thing, I will feel really good. And anything beyond that is gravy. So I've tried to temper my expectations about what I'm going to see. And I find that just kind of wandering around is actually makes some of the best travel experiences rather than having set things that I have to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I have an essay about that when uh, I was traveling with my friend, the Iranian poet and translator, Shalai Wolpe, and we were in uh, Kochi, and I wanted to see the Grand Elephant Festival. I'd read a little bit about it, not enough about it, right? But I read a little bit about it. I thought, oh, that's the place I want to go. I, I love elephants, you know? So the whole time I wanted to go see this 
Grand Elephant Festival, and she had planned to do a talk at a bookstore. And I was like thinking about the talk at the bookstore as sort of this like thing we had to do on the way to the Grand Elephant Festival. And the talk at the bookstore was so interesting. And the Grand Elephant Festival was so sad and horrible. And that's exactly what you're talking about, that I have learned that, you know, if I'm going to go somewhere, I don't necessarily have to see the landmarks. Instead, how about finding a really great cafe and looking around at what people are doing in the world? You know, I mean, a little bit harder in our current condition of COVID, Mm -hmm. but you can still wander the streets, right? And, you know, not all places. I mean, of course we have to uh, adjust a bit, which... Yes, COVID has made us do that. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about having a fear of flying and that for many years, especially after you were named the next great travel writer by National Geographic Magazine, your fear made you feel a little bit like an imposter. And, you know, it's a reasonable thing to wonder how someone who is a travel writer can be afraid of flying. So talk a little bit about how you have overcome that fear in order to do something that you love, or maybe you haven't overcome the fear. Oh, no, I haven't overcome it. I hate flying. I'm terrified of it. I don't understand the physics of how a thing that big can be held up in the air. And I'm generally okay unless, you know, I think I hear some funny noise, which is always, right? Or (laughs) there's turbulence or feel like we're not on the right flight path or like as if I'm the captain. Um, (laughs) So, no, I, I absolutely have not overcome the fear. But I also love travel and I love going places. So I just deal with the fear. I do it anyway. And I know the fear is pretty irrational. I mean, being in a car is much more dangerous. I know that. And I have tried all these like things where I, you know, talk myself down and I, well, I used to have a glass of wine, but right now you can't do that on the planes, but um, I, I still do it. I think that that's kind of the key to life, right? Is doing the things that you're afraid of, especially if those fears are not exactly rational. And as far as feeling like an imposter, I always feel like an imposter. And I think that's just part of being a writer. You know, I had a student yesterday ask me if I'd ever self-publish. And I said, oh, no. And it's because I would feel like an imposter. I need someone else to tell me the book is good enough. There's no way I could decide a book was good enough to print and make into a book. So you really use travel as a means for self-reflection. And your book, Bad Tourist, takes the reader on a journey with you on your travels, but also on your relationship with yourself, specifically your connection with men. And, And that's kind of a theme that ties the book together because the book starts in your 20s and ends when you're in your 40s. So when you were writing this, is that what you were thinking? That Were you looking for something to connect all your stories? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked this question. And here's why. I just gave a workshop yesterday about this very thing, teaching an MFA program right now, Sierra Nevada University. And we talked about what our writing obsessions are. Mm-hmm. And I had the students list their writing. And this is like a great exercise, you know, to use to, to kind of get to a book, in fact. So I, I had them list what their obsessions were. And I told them my writing obsessions, which are travel, my mom, both my parents, really, and sort of my upbringing, mortality, dying and death, desire, uh, what it means to be in a female body, female friendships, you know. And then I talked about the fragments that I write that sort of speak to those obsessions. And then I think about the ways in which those fragments can speak to each other. Mm -hmm. So 
I did not sit down and say, I am going to write a book of essays that explore my own cultural etiquette, blind spots, that are going to explore my feeling about being under the male gaze, that are going to explore what I want and expect for myself as a person in the world. I didn't come at it by theme by any means. And I I think that's the hardest way to write a book. And instead, I come at it through the pieces and through the fragments. And I think a lot of other writers do that too. And I can see it in their writing. I know like Pam Houston, her writing has been really important to me in my life. And that's how she comes to it too. I don't think everyone comes to it that way, but that's the way that I come to it. And I think it works for a lot of people who are struggling to tell their stories. I mean, when you were explaining that, I sort of envisioned in my head almost like piecing a quilt together. Mm-hmm. That there are these things that they don't necessarily, when they're not a part of each other, it might be hard to figure out how they all relate to each other. But then the work of the writing or the work of the piecing makes a fuller picture. Yeah. And it's like Richard Hugo in Triggering Town, which is a great book about writing poetry. He says, you know, when you write a line of poetry, don't worry about what the next line is. It's coming out of the same person. It's coming out of the same brain. So it's going to automatically connect. And then probably someone who writes the way I do probably has to revise a lot more. It takes me a really long time to make a book. And I don't know what it is until really far into the process. And it's frustrating, right, at the beginning, but I've learned to be patient and and let the book tell me what it wants to be. So there are parts of this book that made me laugh out loud. And I would call Carrie, I have since given Carrie the book to read, but she hasn't read it yet. But I would call her and I would read her passages from the book. One of my particular favorite parts is when you're talking about your friend who has a very expensive handbag that she calls Duchess, and you have a $20 bag from TJ Maxx named Butch. Um, That one cracked me up. But there were also essays in here that weren't funny at all. It actually were you know, kind of melancholy and very serious. In the book, you said that when you were growing up, your family used humor to help get through difficult situations. So talk to us a little bit about the humor and the lack of humor in parts of this book. I feel like if the whole book had been funny, it maybe wouldn't have had the same effect on me as a reader. Also a very good question. And I hope you're not too sad, but Butch finally died. She oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> This is still going strong. So, you know, you you get what you pay for. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's a great question. My mother was British and the British have a very dark sense of humor to the point where sometimes my mother's humor and, and the humor that I've maybe inherited from her doesn't always go over perfectly with like an American audience because it is so dark. But I, I think it makes sense. So, the British and especially my mother's family, when facing the most difficult tragedies in life, make fun of it and they laugh. So that's what I did in the book. But I only did it when they were my own tragedies or my own foibles. And I think that some things that are tragic are not funny because they're not mine, right? So watching bodies burn in Varanasi, right, the cremation at the crematorium sites, it's not funny, right? It's serious, it's sacred, it's beautiful, it's meaningful, but it's not funny. Whereas um, if I'm writing about my mom dying, that can be really funny, you know, because it's mine and it's the way that I get to deal with it. And the reader 
will go along with me because it's mine. I've kind of been thinking about the way that I sometimes use humor and sometimes don't. And, you know, my first instinct is to say, well, some things are not funny. And then I think, well, why? And I think it's because the things that are not funny are, are a little bit further away. And the things that are really tragic are, for me, the funniest. Does that make any, does that resonate or am I just a crazy person? Yeah. No, no. I, well, you know, it's funny because I went into the book thinking that really the whole thing was going to be kind of funny and it started out being funny and then it kind of got dark for a while. And I thought, oh, this book wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And then it got really funny again. And then I appreciated that because I just don't think it would, it would have landed the same had there been that I don't know, same sense of humor all the way through, because some of the things that you're talking about are serious and not that you can't joke about serious things. By the end, I appreciated the fact that you had mixed it up. I really tried to, above all else, make fun of myself. No one's funnier than David Sedaris, but you know, there are points where he's really making fun of other people. And I'm kind of like, wow, I can't quite pull that off, you know, um, and I don't want to. And, and so I try to stick with, you know, I make fun of myself in the Las Vegas essay, right, where I read all the cues wrong with the boyfriend's family. And <laughs> that was hysterical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, humor is, is complicated. You know, I mean, I, I think that a lot of times people think it's easier to be funny about something than it is to be serious or, or sad about something or angry. But humor is really complicated because time can affect humor and things that in the moment are completely not funny later on, you might be able to see the humor in them. So I think that readers sometimes think that books that are humorous, like that's a surface level thing, but I, I think humor is, has a lot more depth than what most people give it credit for. Towards the end of the book, you have an essay about the ethics of travel and how travel is obviously good for local economies, um, national economies, but in some ways tourists are killing the thing that they love. And, and I actually heard a NPR news story the other day about a government official in Hawaii who asked people not to come visit because they, they're having a water shortage and that they needed to take care of the people who live in Hawaii first. Now, I think that the rest of the Hawaiian government, you know, poo-pooed that sentiment, but how do you balance those ethical concerns? Well, you couldn't have caught me at a better time because I am, you know, sitting in Lake Tahoe looking at the smoky sky and I do not want any tourists to come to Lake Tahoe right now. We have a very, very serious wildfire. Well, more than one, but we have a very serious wildfire that's threatening uh, the Tahoe Basin at the moment. And having tourists here and during an evacuation uh, situation makes it more dangerous for everyone. And so there are certain times that you just need to do the research and you need to not go to a place where you are going to cause more harm. I also think that you have to do your research anyway to figure out how to be an inhabitant in the place you're going, in a place that you don't know, in the place that is foreign to you. So I'm going to use my hometown as an example. There are no trash cans in the forest. You can't just leave your garbage on the ground. You've got to be very careful with your food because if the wildlife get to it, like the bears, they're going to become accustomed and they're going to become aggressive and they're going to have to be killed. And so it is very important for us as travelers to do our research and really, you know, you talk about adding to the economy. Well, make sure you're staying in a place that does. A lot of the hotel chains where you go, 
are not owned locally by the place where you're going. They're, they're owned by huge conglomerates, you know, that are based in other countries. So really think about, you know, all inclusives, they're not good for the local economies. Cruise ships are not good for the local economies. So in my twenties, I was blissfully ignorant as we we all are about all of these things. And and I didn't think about how staying in place for two days and then getting on a plane impacted the environment, right? I do think about that now. And I am way more planful. I do more research. I plan to stay places longer. I do overland travel like trains, which is good because I'm afraid of flying anyway. <laughs> and I also won't go. I would love to travel internationally, like during COVID, you know, after I've been vaccinated, but still there are places that it's too difficult for me to be there because their health systems are so stressed. For example, mm-hmm. like I don't want to go and be a burden on the places I want to see. I, I could talk for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> Living in a tourist town for the last 20 years. Yes. So as a travel writer, how has COVID affected your life? Are you you traveling more locally? Yeah. So my husband and I got a van (laughs) and it's not a fancy van. It's a 1999 Ford Econoline. So there's like no toilet or shower. We have a bucket, but um, it's only for emergencies. (laughs) We haven't had to use it, but you know, he always offers me his hat. (laughs) Um, but we got the van actually we got the van beginning of COVID and we got the van for our old dog because our old dog loved the van and we took these van trips when we couldn't go anywhere else we were sort of going very locally like from our house to like the top of Luther Pass like really really locally you know like we'd go spend the night 20 minutes away or an hour away or whatever and then we decided that we would rent our house out for the summer, which we did. And we've been living out of the van this summer. And so I am only back in Lake Tahoe because I'm teaching for this low residency MFA program. My husband is in the white otter wilderness canoeing. I haven't actually talked to him in a week, so he doesn't know that our house is in danger right now of wildfire. And I've talked to my tenants and they're leaving today. And and so that's all fine. But we have now we're doing the van life thing, you know? And so I've been houseless since uh, June 30th. And I'm currently at a, at a dear friend's house and speaking with you. Wow. So there's concern that your house could burn? Yeah. Yeah. So the Calder fire is a very uh, extreme and explosive wildfire that started, I think, on Tuesday, and it's already grown to something like 75,000 acres, might be more since I've looked at the news. And the evacuation right now goes to the top of Echo Summit, which is about seven miles as a crow flies from my house. The winds are, are blowing today, and they're blowing toward South Lake Tahoe. So I don't know what's going to happen. None of us do. I mean, these fires have become incredibly difficult to fight, and resources are stretched really thin. So I'm worried about everything. I'm worried about the forests and the animals and the future and the town. And I'm worried about my friends. I'm worried about so many more other things than, than my house. That's like kind of low on the list of worries. Before we took off, we, we knew that we're living in a, an area of you know wildfire danger. And I put my journals and some old photographs of my mom and some of my most important art in a storage unit 
you know, some signed books by friends who have died, you know, some very, very sort of nostalgic, sentimental things are in Carson City in a storage unit. But I just am glad my tenants are on top of it because it's a little dicey at the moment. Yeah, I, I hate to hear that. You know, I think sometimes people who live in other regions, you can understand it in the abstract, but until you are in an air quality of like 500, it's really hard to conceptualize what that means. So what are you working on next? Well, actually, I'm so excited that you asked this question because that book, which I just turned in, I turned it in about a week ago and it will be out uh, with the University of Nebraska Press. It's called Animal Bodies on Death, Desire, and Other Difficulties. And it's already available for pre-order, but the book is in, so I, I know it's, you know, it's in production, but that's not what I'm working on. What I've been working on is... I've been writing a book about taking care of my mom when she's dying of cancer. And I already have about, I don't know, 80,000 words or something. And there are a lot of books about mothers dying and difficult relationships with mothers and grief and caregiving. And the thing that sets my book apart is that my mother was hilarious. I mean, she was mm-hmm. so funny and such an oddball character. I you know took off on on this van trip with my husband in June. But, you know, everyone started asking me like, oh, you know, you know, I want to hear about the van life. And I was like, there's no story there. And then I got back to Tahoe and I realized I just hadn't had time to sit and think. And so when I got home, I realized that some things that have happened to me in this sort of van life have spurred flashbacks to the time of taking care of my mom. So I was actually thinking I could write the van life as the frame of like what's going on. And because really the reason we were able to quit our jobs and we've taken off in a van is because all of our parents died. So it's connected in a very real way. And it's also connected to COVID. So it's all connected, you know, like we talked about with the obsessions and the, and the Mm -hmm. way fragments fit together. And I just kind of thought that that might make an interesting book. Yes. (laughs) We both say (laughs) yes. We want to read it. (laughs) I'm like, it's got, travel. It's got death. I love books that kind of coming at subjects from different angles. I love the idea of, you know, you're taking this road trip in this van and also thinking about your mom. But I sort of like the the weaving of the two together. We want you to give us progress reports. Watch what you wish for. I'm already on a bunch of accountability lists. <laughs> Well, I think it sounds awesome. I can't wait to hear if you do it and how it turns out. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing with us about your travel experiences and about your motivations for bad tourists. We appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was so fun talking to you both. You can find Amber Share on social media at Subpar Parks or at her website, www.ambersharedesign.com. And Suzanne Roberts can be found on Instagram at SuzanneRoberts28, or on her website at www.SuzanneRoberts.net. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. 
Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org. <laughs>